The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. A reading today from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing their circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks again, Emily. Well, um, coming... To this passage, there's, uh, man, there's a lot of things that I could say about it. Um, If you're familiar uh, with it, you may understand what I mean by that. If you're unfamiliar with it, it, if you haven't looked at this passage before, I I think it's easy to just take a glance at it and to to think, you know, okay, there's not too much here. Um, Because at a glance, we've got Paul, what's he doing? He's, He's telling us about this encounter that he has had with uh, Cephas, who, in case you don't know, he's speaking about um, the Apostle Peter. And and then he follows that up in, uh, I think it's verses 15 through 21, with some teaching that is very relevant to this encounter that he had with Peter. And so this isn't terribly unusual from the sorts of things that we come across. Um, Paul sharing some kind of a story, sharing some kind of event, following it up with some teaching. However, um, and I'll just put this as, as simply as I, as I can. Uh, there is a lot. There's so much here. I mean, it's an understatement to even say that. Um, in fact, this brief passage, many would argue that it contains essentially like a universe of, of knowledge and insights for us as the church to just plumb the depths of, to discover. So much so that I, I think that it would be um, reasonable for us to spend two weeks on this, just these 11 verses that we've got 
here this Sunday and next Sunday. And these two messages, today's and next week's, will have a lot in common with one another. Inevitably, there'll be uh, um, a lot of overlap, I'm sure. But here's what you can expect, I think, generally speaking, that for this week, I would like for us to weigh out more on the side of context, um, just trying to get into the passage, into this uh, scene, this event. Uh, this message may be a little bit unusual in the sense that this this may come across more like a time of teaching than preaching, more so than, than um, uh, other times. And so, um, so, but that's not to say that this message won't have practical application. I hope I expect that it will. Um, next week, we'll do more of that, um, I'm sure. But at that time, we're going to try to weigh out more on the side of how this event and how this core teaching from Paul in 15 through 21 might be relatable, might be practical, might be unusually, uncomfortably even relevant to us here in our context. So um, that's, that's the plan for these next two weeks. That said now, big picture, I've been talking a lot about how significant this is. Um, suggesting to you that it contains a whole universe that we, we should spend two weeks in it. Um, how so? Like, what's so significant about it? I, me talking in this way, I may be coming across in a, a slightly exaggerated way, which, you know, pastors never do that. I never do that, right? No, no hyperbole here. But um, no, really, uh, uh, this, is, this, is this is legit this time. Here, here's why. This is why this is so significant um, it's because of this core teaching, this core teaching from Paul. Um, this is what I would refer to as the heart of the gospel. That's the title of our message this morning, by the way, the heart of the gospel. That's what are we talking about? What is the core teaching? It's um, what many refer to as justification by faith. If you want a longer, there's, a, there's always other versions, right? If you want an even longer version than that, how about this? Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a mouthful. In fact, you might you hear me saying that. You might be sitting here thinking to yourself, like, what in the world does all that even mean? That sounds very complicated to me. Um, sounds a bit confusing even. If so, please, I would appeal to you, hang in there. Don't tap out. Because in essence, that question, what in the world does that all mean? Um, that question is the very question that we want to spend the next two weeks just trying to answer. We won't in full, I'm sure. We're always plumbing the depths of that question. But um, hopefully over the course of these next two weeks, we'll get some helpful clarity about what we're talking about when we're talking about justification by faith. And with that in mind, at the outside, uh, uh, outside here, this might be helpful. Let me, um, at the very least help to frame this idea using the words of others, hearing you know, some, some, some commentary from others about this, about the significance uh, of it. So um, this is how Martin Luther put it. In Luther, in case you don't know, he was a man who was used by God as a key figure in the European uh, Protestant Reformation of the 1600s, which was a, a movement which essentially, you might say, it shook the world, it, it took the world by storm. You could describe this movement as a radical rediscovery 
of the gospel of grace. And this letter here, the letter to the Galatian churches, played a very significant, very pivotal role in Martin Luther's life and his own discovery of the gospel. And this core teaching of justification by faith, you could also say, was the very bedrock of this movement that I'm, I'm talking about. So here's how Luther talked about the significance of justification by faith. He wrote this, when the article of justification has fallen, in other words, if the church loses sight of it, loses sight of its significance, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen, he tells us. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince, the Lord and ruler, and the judge of all kinds of doctrines. So what's he saying? He's telling us that this core teaching of justification by faith is the very bedrock of the church. Or hear the words of yet another European reformer, same general time frame, same movement. This is John Calvin, much more concise. He says, justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. Again, it's the bedrock. It's the cornerstone. It's the very foundation of our faith. Here's one more. Um, might be helpful to include a, a more modern voice. This is uh, Professor Richard Lovelace. Um, he passed away just a few years ago in 2020. Brilliant man. Uh, speaking of this same doctrine of justification by faith and just how critical it is, he says this, in order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, something that we should desire, something that we should long for, pray for. In order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, multitudes within it must be led to build their lives on this foundation, the foundation of justification by faith. Why? Because this is the heart of, of the gospel. That's why. It's, it's the firm foundation upon which the church stands. It's that important. And so we have to, we have to ask, um, what in the world does this mean? What are we even talking about? Uh, we'll spend the next two weeks trying to answer that question. So here's a bit of an outline for us this morning. Three things for us. First thing, we need to consider the matter at hand. The matter at hand. I'm talking about this scene that Paul's describing for us. What's going on here with Peter, Cephas? What's happening with him? And this is where we're going to spend probably the majority of our time this morning, just digging into the context here, just trying to get a feel for this situation, okay? Uh, secondly, we'll consider the heart of the matter. In other words, what's happening beneath this event? What's happening underneath the situation with Peter? What's driving it? And then lastly, we'll consider the heart of the gospel, where we will begin to delve in, we'll begin to try to define this core teaching from Paul of justification by faith. So one more time, the matter at hand, the heart of the matter, and the heart of the gospel. To begin with, 
the matter at hand. Please uh, look back with me at verse 11 there. It says this, <clears throat> But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And we should definitely just hit the brakes and just stop right there and just think about what's happening here. Okay, uh, Because this is what you might call, or what I might, you might not call it this, this is what I might call a record scratch moment. You know what I'm talking about? You get together with some friends, um, you're having a good time, enjoying one another's company, there's some, some music playing, people are talking, laughing, dancing, and then suddenly, uh, the record stops, there's a scratch, and everything comes to a halt, right? Uh, the mood in the room suddenly just changes, like, what's going on? That's what's going on here, um, in not such a great way, all right? Because, um, in a room full of people, it would seem, Paul essentially calls for everyone's attention, listen up, hear me out, and with everyone now looking and listening intently, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul calls out the Apostle Peter for malpractice, okay? So, I mean, just, you know, use your imagination here. Just try to imagine this happening in, in maybe another context. Maybe that would help. So, like, let's just take, like, a workplace situation maybe you know, two highly influential, trusted leaders who are um, equal in their stature. Um, neither has a leg up on the other. And before a bunch of supervisors and employees and so on, one publicly calls the other out, says something like, what you did back there, that wasn't right. Can you imagine this in, in, in your workplace, if, if you've got one? What you, what you just did back there, that wasn't right. In fact, it was downright wrong. You've misrepresented our company. Your actions demonstrate poor leadership. You're a terrible, you have been a terrible example. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Apostle Peter. I mean, shoot, that'll make some waves, right? Can you imagine this? And this is what Paul does here. And so is Paul, is Paul overreacting? If you know anything about Paul, I mean, he's a passionate guy. Is he... Um, getting carried away here. Is that what's going on? Hold that thought. Let's keep reading. Let's read some more. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Well, why? How? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But, however, when they came, when they showed up in the building, he drew back. And separated himself, meaning that he drew back and he separated himself from the Gentile Christians who were there, that were with him, his people, okay? And just a quick reminder on this, in case this, it, 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 just getting more into the context, in case this might be helpful. When he says Gentile, Paul is talking about individuals who were not Jewish by birth, by, by heritage, by practice, okay? anything like that. However, they had embraced Jesus. They had embraced the news of the gospel along with others, many of whom were Jewish by birth, by heritage, by practice. And so that's who Peter is drawing back from and separating himself from here once these folks roll into town and roll into the building. Okay. Now, why? Right? Why? 
Why would he do that? And here's why. Because he was, we've got the answer, verse 12, fearing the circumcision party. Let's keep trying to figure out what's happening here. Well, who, who's that? Who are they? We've talked about this in previous weeks. This was the group consisting entirely of Jewish individuals who claimed to embrace Jesus, who claimed to embrace this same gospel, the same gospel that Peter and Paul embraced, the same gospel that these other Gentile Christians had embraced. However, Paul, if, if you're remembering back, he referred to these same individuals in this letter as false teachers. He called, he called Paul's calling all kinds of people out, right? Um, and here's why he called them that. It's because they insisted that in order to be a true blue Christian, you needed the gospel and. You needed the gospel plus. Do you remember this? They said, you need the gospel plus circumcision. In this, this gospel plus talk is what Paul is fiercely opposing throughout this entire letter. And back to the scene that we've got here, when these same folks who were wielding this false gospel came rolling into the room where Peter was with these Gentile Christians. Try to imagine this if you can, all right? When, when Peter sees them coming, so, you know, Peter's, Peter's over here maybe with these Gentile Christians. The other guys roll, roll in over here. They're, they're sitting maybe in... in Peter, do you understand what he's doing here? Have you seen this kind of thing before? Have you done this? And he likely sat with these folks, ate with them, uh, probably was eating things that Jewish people traditionally eat. He's probably not eating things that Jewish people traditionally do not eat. And it, he could do this because he, like Paul, like Jesus, was, was a Jewish man. This was his heritage. This was his tradition. This was his practice. Now, we should ask the question, why would Peter do this? But before we can ask that question, first we have to ask the question, why was Peter eating with the Gentile Christians in the first place? And why might that be a big deal? Because it was. In case you don't know, it's a really big deal that Peter was doing this. Um, one of the things that we need to understand here is that at this time, it would have been utterly countercultural for a Jewish person to sit down and have a meal with a Gentile person for several reasons. I'll give just a couple. One would be diet. One would be diet. Jewish people were prohibited from eating um, certain things that were deemed unclean. They had, you know, dietary limitations that were placed on them uh, by God's law. Um, certain meats, for instance, couldn't be eaten. Things like um, pork were considered unclean. Another reason why they would not eat together had to do with just their entire concept of what it meant to share a meal with someone. To sit down and to share a meal with someone was considered a very personal thing. It was a very intimate sort of an act. It implied a connection. It, it implied a shared life. It implied equality. Like we're, you know, on, we're on level ground, so let's have lunch. 
Um, and therefore, a Jewish person would not share in a meal with a Gentile person. They were viewed, um, I think this is fair to say, as being inferior in certain ways. For instance, they, they were considered to be, this comes back to the dietary law stuff, they were considered to be unclean because they didn't participate in certain kinds of ceremonial practices, practices intended to cleanse a person who has become unclean for some reason, who have become, un become unclean by touching something or eating the wrong thing. Or, um, and this is why, why Paul, I think, I think this is why Paul refers to the Gentiles as sinners, in case that like caught you and you're like, that sounds ah, that sounds kind of sharp. Um, I, I don't think it's because Paul thought that the Jewish people were without sin and that the Gentile people were. I don't think that at all. That wouldn't line up with anything that we read from Paul. But a Jewish person would have thought of a Gentile person as a sinner in the sense that they had no way of purifying themselves from their sins. And in a sense, I believe Paul is being a little bit clever here in making that, that sentence that, you know, maybe he's trying to highlight something, trying to get underneath the matter at hand that's taking place with Peter. And we'll get into that shortly. But before we do that, we still have not answered this question of before these folks showed up, why did, why did Peter, before they showed up, why did Peter feel at liberty to sit and to eat with these Gentile Christians here? Keeping in mind all, of, all the things that I just said, right? And the reason he felt that he could do that is because, it's really simple. It's because God told him that he could. Literally, God told him that he could do that, all right? You can read about this in Acts chapter 11. Peter had a profound experience. He had a vision from God in which he saw, I mean, it's a really, if you, if you haven't read it before, it's pretty bizarre. I'll say that up front. He had this vision of these animals coming down from heaven, um, particularly these, these unclean animals that Jewish people were prohibited from uh, eating. And after seeing this vision of these animals, we get this. This is Peter talking. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I've never eaten anything like that. I know better. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Don't consider these animals as unclean anymore. I, I, I the one who placed these considerations on you and retracting them. You're free, okay? Well, what's this all about? I mean, it's strange, right? Why the vision? Why this message from the Lord? And what we learn, if you continue to read on in Acts chapter 11, uh, is that God was orchestrating something. He was orchestrating an encounter between Peter and a Gentile household, a Gentile Family. As soon as Peter's vision ends, he gets a knock at the door. There's some people looking for him, and they're saying, hey, come with me. I want to take you to this gentleman Cornelius' house, all right? And the Spirit of God encouraged Peter. Yeah, what that guy said, do that, okay? So Peter goes with these folks, heading to this man Cornelius' house. Meanwhile, 
This is a lot, right? I mean, this, you realize why, why we need two weeks now, okay? Meanwhile, God had given a vision to this man, Cornelius, okay? And God was preparing and assuring this man, Cornelius, as well, telling Cornelius, hey, you're going to get a visitor. His name's Peter. He's coming. Um, and, the, and, and God told him, he, so talking to Cornelius, he, speaking of Peter, will speak words to you, Cornelius, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so it was. Okay? And this was like the initiation of something really profound. The church began to grow and spread throughout the world from this moment on. And Peter was used by God in significant ways. Peter was used by God as a pioneer of this great work of bringing redemption and salvation to the Gentile world, which would include probably most of us in this room. He was commissioned by God to do this very thing. Somehow, through the gospel, God removed every barrier that had, had been there before, okay? Every obstacle so that Peter could, it, there was nothing that stood between him in sitting and fellowshipping with, having a shared life with these people, right? Having shared meals with these people. So how does the rest of this scene, with this backstory now in mind, how does the rest of this scene play out in Galatians chapter 2? Let's just pick it back up. We'll start at the end of verse 12. He, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, so I think that what's being referenced here is those ministering to Gentiles along with Peter. Peter's compadres, okay? Those who Peter was a leader to. Those who Peter was mentoring. So it says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I, Paul speaking here, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And that last little statement there um, is kind of riddlesome, isn't it? Right? Uh, what I believe Paul is saying here is, you flipped things, Peter. You've gone back on the change that God has brought about. What are you thinking? What have you done, Peter? We'll get, when we get together next week, we'll talk more about Peter and just how ironic this all is. Um, but that's, that's the matter at hand, okay? That's the matter at hand. We needed to do that. Diving in, understanding the original context. Why? Um, because it's going to help us in spades. Is we like we want to understand what's happening, what God has done, and of course we want to understand how, what does that have to do with me. That'll be that'll be next week. But just try to like take this with you. So what is this scene all about? What's what's at the heart of this? This puts us into our second point, the heart of the matter. Why is Peter acting like this? 
why is Peter acting like this? Um, I'm just going to touch briefly on this uh, on this this morning. Um, we'll spend the majority of our time on this. We're going to go deep on just this one idea of getting underneath what's going on with Peter here. But briefly, what's going on with Peter here? It's as though he's like suddenly gotten amnesia. Like he's just, you know, lost his, you know, lost everything. But he, he, he doesn't have amnesia, you understand. Instead, Peter has a case of what the Bible calls people fear. People fear, the fear of man. Well, what is this about? And in a sense, Paul, he's been hinting at this, this idea along the way um, throughout this letter so far. He, he's, he's had his, before we get to this passage, Paul already um, had his finger on the nerve of, of what's going on here. If you'll recall, he opened up his letter expressing his great astonishment at the Galatians because they too, right? They too seem to have amnesia. Isn't that what he says? He essentially told them, have you forgotten everything? Have you forgotten everything I, I've taught you? You've exchanged one gospel for another. What's wrong with you? Have you forgotten the grace of God? Now, it, it's, it, now we see why he's sharing this example as it pertains to Peter. And he begins in chapter 1 to reintroduce them to the gospel of grace. Hey, everybody, th- come on now. This is what it's really about. And to, to prepare them to hear it, in chapter 1, he's reminding them of his apostleship. He's reminding them of his God-given authority. And as he's doing this, he, he, as he says this, maybe you'll remember, he, he says this in verse 10 of chapter 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, if that was my goal, if that was like my main concern, I would not be a servant of Christ, Paul tells us. In other words, he's saying, I'm not, Galatians, I'm not messing with you guys. I'm confronting you for a reason. I don't need your approval. I don't need the approval of these folks who've got you rattled and confused. People who want the approval of other people don't go into the kind of line of work that I'm in. That's like oil and water. Those things don't mix. This is what Paul's saying. And then he's saying, so so in light of that, Take my word, like hear the gospel afresh. Okay. However, this is precisely where Peter is, isn't it? Like Peter's not jibing with what Paul just said right there. You understand? Peter, who is a servant of Christ. Peter, a leader among leaders. Peter, a fellow apostle. Peter, who is surrounded by many disciples. Peter, who is surrounded by individuals who have been looking to him for guidance. Surrounded by people who trusted him to show them the way. To show them the way of the gospel. And he's now totally out of line. He's out of sync. He is out of step with the gospel itself. This is what Paul is saying. Why? Because, in a detrimental way, Peter, in this situation, is seeking the approval of people. You could put this differently. You could say that Peter is avoiding the disapproval of people. I think that both of these things are true simultaneously. Well, who are these people? We've talked about them. What is it about them, though? 
Like, what is it about them that would cause Peter to fear them in such a way that he would go back on everything that he's been taught and that he's been teaching people? Like that. What is it about them? Here's a few thoughts. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud. Perhaps it's because they come with an air of authority. I think they do. Importance. They've got pedigree. In other words, they have good credentials. Perhaps it's because they're so bold and they're so self-assured. And in that, and they are. And in that regard, they're, you might say, in a sense, they're impressive. They're the kind of people you might feel inclined to make a good impression on. Remember, Peter is not so impressive, right? Not in, not in these ways, not in this regard. He's a fisherman by trade. Therefore, by all appearances, these people seem superior, maybe. Maybe this has something to do with why he's acting the way he's acting. Whatever the case, Peter, anticipating their potential disapproval, desiring to avoid conflict, not wanting to make waves, desiring their acceptance. I'm choosing my words very carefully here. I hope you're listening. Desiring their acceptance their approval, wanting to avoid their disapproval. To secure these things, he embraces hypocrisy and he becomes a pretender. Have you ever done this? Been one way with this crowd and then this way with this crowd? Why? Why do we do that? It's a weird thing. Why do we do that? Why do we even have, maybe you're like, I don't do that. Why do you have the impulse to do it? Because you do. And again, he did this in front of all of these people who trusted him, who looked to him. And we know that it's true that they they trusted him and they looked to, to him because we're told that he was so influential in their lives that these people followed him straight into it, straight into his hypocrisy. And and by the way, is Paul overreacting? No. Meanwhile, just use your imagination with me, the Gentile Christians, they're over here, right? They're left sitting, eating alone, probably quite confused, probably quite disillusioned by this sudden change in Peter. Because suddenly the gospel that they learned from Peter was no longer guiding and animating Peter. Like, how do I translate this situation? What do I make of this? This is what the Bible calls the fear of man. This is what the Bible calls people fear. And as we'll see next week, this is the heart of so many matters as it relates to us. That's why I'm saying this is a this passage is a universe to explore. This goes so deep with us, and it doesn't only ever look like this. So in case you're like, I don't identify with Peter here, this dynamic, this aspect of the broken condition of who we are, it can show itself in a lot of ways. We'll explore them next week. It can guide and animate us in all sorts of ways. And to end off here, Paul, we need to see this. 
he does not see this as being just like coincidental. He doesn't see this as like a personality flaw with Peter. Like, oh, Peter, yeah, we all know Peter. No, that's not how he's seeing this. And we know that because the critical part of this passage is 15 through 21. 11 through 14 is meant to illustrate everything that Paul's talking about in 15 through 21. He's pairing these things up. He's saying, this is the situation, this is how come. And, and if you look at 15 through, like, he uses this word justified over and over and over again. I think like four or five times just in, just in those few verses. To Paul, the heart of the matter here comes right back to the heart of the gospel. And this, this again, this puts us into our last point for this morning, the heart of the gospel. What do Peter's actions here have to do with justification, we should ask? What do they have to do with justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Because they do. Well, what is Let's do a little bit of defining work, okay? What does it mean to be justified? You've got one um, possible definition for you in your time of reflection on page uh, two from Jerry Bridges. I'll read it for you. He writes this, To be justified means more than to be declared, to, to be declared not guilty. So that's one part of it, he's saying. One part of justification is to be declared not guilty. It, it, it actually means, so there's more to it than that, it actually means to be declared righteous, before God. It means God has imputed or charged the guilt of our sin to his son, Jesus Christ, and has imputed his past along or credited Christ's righteousness to us. So I'm just going to walk through this. I'm just going to try to be as clear about this as I can. To be, to be justified before God means that somehow we're made right with God. We're seen by him as being righteous. We're no longer wrong. We're no longer at odds with God because of this core teaching that Paul's talking about. It means that somehow our lives please God. It means that somehow we're approved of by God. We have his approval. It means that somehow we've been fully accepted by God. It means that somehow we've not been overcome by the judgment or the disapproval of God. It means that somehow we belong to God, that he smiles on us somehow. He promises to never turn from us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. How? How can this be? We are justified by grace alone. What does that mean? Sheer grace, sheer unearned, lavished love, lavished favor that you and I have done nothing to earn. We have not performed in any way to deserve this from God, and he gives it to us freely. How do we do that? How do we access this grace? Through faith alone, in Christ alone, us play, placing the weakness of our trust in him, on him, resting in the strength of Christ in his acts of redemption on our behalf. That's how. And somehow, Peter, a Christian, a Christian leader, somebody like you and me, he has lost touch with this reality in this moment. 
And so do we. So do we. That's why we're talking about it. Luther said every week, he was a preacher, every week I preach justification by faith to my people. Why, Martin Luther? Because every week they forget it. He would have included himself in that sentence, by the way. The gospel isn't just for people who don't know Jesus. It's for people who do know him as well. It's for Peter. It's for for Peter in the face of one more epic failure. I mean, we don't learn about what happens next with Peter. But like, what's going to meet Peter in this moment? It's for you and me. And if we think that all of the things that are happening in our lives, if we think that all of the ways that we struggle in our relationships, if we think that all of the difficulties, all of the tensions that are taking place in our homes, in our workplaces, if we think that all of our social anxieties, all of our relational power struggles among other people, if we think that those things have nothing to do with the gospel, then we are not understanding this at all. It has direct correlation to all of these things. Central, relevant to our lives in every possible way. And so, although I may not be resolving this message in the ways that I tend to resolve our our messages on Sunday mornings, please just, at the very, if nothing else, just sit with that idea. Just let that, that thought linger with you. Let it fester for the remainder of our service, for the remainder of this day, over the course of this next week, just realizing that the gospel, it's not an, it's not an ABC gospel. It's not just the way in. It's the A to Z. It's, it's for everything. And so we have to wrestle with this. We have to ask the question, how, like how? How is this relevant? What in the world does this mean? What in the world does justification by faith have to do with all of these other things and all these parts of who I am? How does God intend to use that in my life to change me, to change the ways in which I see him, the ways I see other people, the ways in which I respond to others? More on that next Sunday. Let me pray. prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. That's who we are, Father, and you you know it better than we do, how sheep-like we are. Oh, how we need you. Oh, how we need a good shepherd who will leave the 99 and go for the one. Would you shepherd us? Would you keep drawing us into your fold? Would you keep putting this incredible good news before our face? Would you massage it into our hearts and minds? Yet again, we pray. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.